situation we do as a nation. And uh, there, was, there was a great, you know, there was, there was bishops and ex-bishops and all sorts of things and writers and bloggers and, and, and they said me. And one of the things that, that really um, stuck me about it is that when you get a bunch of Christians in a room together, we talk about everything that's wrong. So all, all the things talked about how bad things had got and they, they have got bad. You know, there were sessions on the rise of Islam and and the whole uh, political correctness agendas and all this sort of stuff and uh, the, the rebelliousness of people in our nation towards God and how uh, that's, that's reflecting itself now under the pressure we find ourselves. And there was people there who've been involved in some of the legal cases that you've read about, you know, in, in the newspapers the past few years, you know, just sharing their stories and what they'd gone through. And I got to the end of this conference and the thing that challenged me was we are in a mess. However, every solution I heard was what can we do about it as the church? The answer to that is absolutely nothing because it's the church that got us in that mess. It's our inactivity for generations that has got us here. And the thing is, it's not the church, it's not an organisation that can change anything. This nation is too far gone for people to come up with a plan or a strategy that's going to change anything. We need God to change things. And the last time I looked, you know, you can go away from these conferences and you can be really glum. I got in my car and I was like this. And, and the thing is, that my Bible still says that in whatever faces me, I am more than a conqueror. My Bible still says that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I was, and I was sat there and I was repeating these verses to myself in my car driving home. And God just reminded me, he says, it's not, it, it, this isn't bad, it's been worse. And I'm going like, well, what do you mean, God, it's been worse? He said, well, just think of it. At one time, there was 12 people in a whole world against them. 12, 12 to couple of billion or whatever it was. And they managed to do something. They managed to change the world by the power of the Spirit and by my might. And they realised that it's not them that walks the earth, it's me that walks the earth in them. And when we, look to, when we look to God, he does things. You know, a lot of the letters in the Bible and Revelation as well, they're written to believers under persecution in a society that didn't understand them, didn't know what they were doing, was... You know, at the moment, we're not getting thrown to lions. It's been worse. At the moment, we're not getting beheaded or guillotined or burnt at stakes. It's been worse. And yet, we've got ourselves in a place of no hope, and that's not right. That's an enemy plan. That's an enemy way of looking at things. There is hope. There's always hope because there's always Christ, and he wins. He wins. We're here to enforce a victory, not worry about the defeat. We are God's people on earth, and... and I was just really stirred that we, as individuals, need to make a difference. As individuals, outside these walls, we need to make a difference. Because the church has retreated in its walls and is coming up with strategies and goal strategies and plans of ways to get people to come into its walls. Jesus said, go. Go. He didn't say, come. He said, go. And you know, 
when I, when I start thinking about these things, it just really impresses on me more and more that we have a really deep need to recognise that as individuals we can make a difference. As individuals we can make a difference. It's not that we need the church to organise something to make a difference. As individuals, every single believer is designed to make a difference. And I guess there's about half of us or more who are sitting here saying, thinking to myself, yeah, I get that, I get that. I know that's the right answer. I've tried this, but it didn't work. It didn't make a difference. I didn't do it. It, it hasn't happened. And there's also a, a whole bunch of us who are thinking, well, you know, I'm just so busy. I've just got this on. I've got that on. Maybe, maybe sometime I'll, when that's all out of the way, I can do something. And there's others of us who, who really honestly just need stirring up by the Holy Spirit. And, and we find ourselves in all sorts of places, all sorts of um, positions, all sorts of thinking going through our head. And the truth is, if that is stopping us making an impact in lives around us, that's not God's thinking. That's, that's the world's thinking. That's your flesh thinking. That's the enemy's thinking. Amen? Amen. And so, you know, in this, where, where we're going to with this series is really to try and free us up, take that, those steps of freeing us up to believe we can make a difference as individuals and to see how we can do that. And, you know, you can tell from the slide behind me that the, the answer to that is we've got to surprise the world because it isn't looking for us. It isn't thinking, well, what are those Christians up to? It, it's, it's not interested in us at the moment. So the Holy Spirit is giving us a mission from day one of the church to surprise the world. And that's what they did, the 12 guys against the whole world, and that's what we're still called to do. We're still called to surprise the world. Now, a big part of us affecting lives around us is to reach people. And um, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to try and free you up by sorting out some of the thinking that we've accumulated that isn't right, that actually makes most of us feel that we're useless and ineffective and can't do it. And basically, it's, you know, for, I don't know, most of my lifetime, we've taken two approaches, two approaches to reaching people. The first approach is this, that, that we, have, we get trained to memorize a prefabricated gospel presentation, and we get trained at various ways of how we could get that into a conversation to tell people. That's method number one. And um, for most of us, I mean, maybe you're different, in which case I've got something to say to you as well, but for most of us, that's kind of a mortifying prospect because we're trying to force every single conversation to get in our prefabricated presentation that we want to give. And we have... If you're anything like me, you've got like 20 of these, all different variations, all different ways of doing it. And when it comes and you do get an opportunity, you freeze. And you go, oh, which one do I do? Which one? And by then it's gone. And, and we've, we've kind of... You see, the problem is when you take the Holy Spirit out of the picture, you're just left with the mechanistic. And the mechanistic doesn't work. 
for most people. And, you know, you can end up feeling guilty. You can end up feeling inadequate. The second approach is this. You develop friendships with people and you develop relationships with people. And at a suitable point, you invite them along to church so they can hear somebody like me preach. And hopefully, at some point, when they've heard somebody like me preach long enough, they get saved. And if we're really sophisticated, every few times a year, we'll do something where it's just straight go a gospel presentation. And we all get encouraged to invite our friends. And in both those approaches, some people get saved. That's good news, isn't it? Some people get saved. Some people come to Christ. Some people say prayers. Some people make commitments. You can make what you, you want of all that. But the, the fact is that we're in the state we are in as the body of Christ right here because whilst some get saved, very few actually become disciples. And there's a difference between being saved and being a disciple. There's a follow-through. There's, there's a growing, there's a desiring to be more like Christ. And, and we haven't been really very effective on hitting that bit. Now, I believe that both of those approaches are kind of unfair. They're unfair to us. I feel like they're unfair to me. Um, and, and they're unfair for this, because the first one, you know, the, the prefabricated presentation, you've got to slip in, it's like, it sets the expectation just way too high for most of us to even, like, think we can go there. Um, here's what, where I'm coming at this morning. Not everyone has a gift of evangelism. But some do. Not everyone has a gift of evangelism. But some do. And for those who don't have a gift of evangelism, that approach sets the bar too high, too difficult, and way too and, and all we end up doing is we feel pressured, we feel guilty, we feel inadequate, and every so often, when it all gets too much for us, we blurt the gospel out, have a real go at somebody, and they never want to hear from us again. Have you been there? Yeah? I, I've lost friends like that. I've lost, you know, people like that. Because it's like, I've got to, somehow, I've got to do it. And all these things are going in your head. Well, what if they get run over by a bus tomorrow? And yes, they might get run over by a bus tomorrow, but what matters is how did they do it in the Bible? Not how we think we should do it. How did they go about changing the world in Scripture? Because here's something I learned from this uh, symposium that I was at. We can have hundreds of plans, but God's got a strategy. And God's the one with the power to make the strategy happen. And so the second one, which is the idea of like befriending people, inviting them to church and getting them to come along to a meeting, that reduces your role to being a marketing or a marketeer. So your job is you market this, the, all the benefits of what would happen if they came along to this fantastic place and you sell them the organization. And here's what we end up doing. In our desperation to get people to come to church with us, we end up introducing them to church, but not to Jesus. And that's a serious problem. Because the church doesn't save anybody, but Jesus saves all who will come to him. And 
you know, the difficulty is what if it's really naff that morning? What if the, what, what, what for instance, what happens if the worship starts and you can't hear the singers because you've got a technical problem? And it's, oh my goodness, they're not going to come back again. And, and there's all these things. So what that does is it forces us down a route of absorbing massive amounts of human resources, massive amounts of energy, huge, huge, huge amount of finance to put on the best show possible in the hope that if somebody brings somebody, they won't be embarrassed and they'll come back the following week. That's, that's not a biblical method. It's not a biblical way of thinking. Where, where's the Holy Spirit? We're, we're not trying to sell an organization. You know, however good we are, we're not as good as Coldplay. We are not as good as Muse. And for those who like, like these things, you know, we're not as good as any of those, the, the, those performances. We're not as good as the Royal Ballet. We might try. Anybody want to try? <laughs> we're, not, we're just not as good. However, millions and millions and millions of pounds we throw at it, we're not as good. So if we rely on that, our only option is to keep on throwing money at it to be better and better and better, but we'll still not be as good. And some mornings, technology will let you down. And what are you going to do then? Because you ain't got the Holy Spirit to fall back on. Are you with me? So either of those approaches, I think, are really unfair. Now, here's what I think Jesus designed us to be. He designed us to be an army. It was interesting, we sang that, I see an army rising. He designed us to be an army of ordinary people. Now, here's what, where I'm coming from. Who thinks they're an ordinary person? Joyce doesn't. Excellent. <laughs> okay, forget all the stuff about you're a new species of being and you're extraordinary and all that stuff. Forget all those sermons I preach. Who thinks when, when they go outside these walls, you're just you. You're just an ordinary person. And Jesus designed things to work through ordinary people like me and you. That means when we think about this, everybody can do this. Everybody who is a believer can do this, whereas we can't do the other two. And if we think of ourselves as an ordinary, um, ordinary people who were an army sent out to bring about the reign of Christ. We need something that makes us, or puts us in a position where we're not expected to be something we're not, or something less than we are. And so we, we need to go back and go like, what did these guys do who changed the world? You know, I don't know if you remember, in Acts 17 it says that, you know, they went to this, uh, they, they had a bit of an outbreak of trouble at, uh, whose was it, Jonas's house. And uh, they said, oh no, these guys, these Christians have come here now, these people who are turning the world upside down. They've come here now. Now, they were ordinary people who were turning the world upside down. People who look just like us. And had all the frailties, all the hang-ups, and all the issues that we have. Ordinary people turning the world upside down. And so it's really helpful if we go, well, what were they doing? Here's the thing. And I know this is, like, 
might, you know, be controversial, but you're kind of used to that, aren't you? You know, like if you've been here more than two or three weeks, you're kind of used to, to me saying things. And then it's okay because Cheryl will sort you out and calm you down later. Okay, but here's my question. Are we all supposed to be evangelists? No, but well, yes, yes, Cheryl. There you are. That's the loving Cheryl. No, yes, yes, no. Are we all supposed to be evangelists? Because I've heard this all, all my life in church. We all should be evangelists and sharing the gospel. And the only purpose the church exists is for the outside world to have the gospel shared with them. That's not true. The church has all sorts of purposes. One of its purposes as the body of Christ is to share the gospel. Another purpose is to love one another. Another purpose is to be there for one another. Another purpose is to carry each other's burden. Another purpose is to look after widows and orphans. We have loads of purposes. It's to study the world. It's to be taught the word. There's all sorts of purposes for the church, corporate. But the question is, as individuals, do we all have, or are we all evangelists? And when, when you come to that, my answer to that, maybe Cheryl, is, yeah, I think we are, in part. But I don't think that's the whole picture. You see, we're all responsible for sharing Jesus and sharing his love with others. But the idea that every one of us is an evangelist is really unhelpful. Because the Bible says it's a gift given to some. And not all at any one time. So we'd be kind of, we'd kind of ingraining an idea in and putting ourselves in difficulty because we're believing something that isn't actually correct. However, it is true I guess that most Christians don't feel like evangelists anyway. But they hear this and they, they, they hear this story and they then feel, well, somewhere inside of me, there must be an evangelist waiting to get out. I just can't find them. I've tried it and, you know, I've, and I just can't find it. But maybe if I study and I get another method, that'll work for me. Because maybe it's just the method I've got wrong. And we go through these things. So I'm trying to be helpful today, but... Here's, here's biblically what the case is. Because Paul, and you know, he knew what he was doing. You know, wrote half the New Testament. Paul says, there's two things going on here. You need a twofold view. There are, firstly, what he does is he affirms the gift of the evangelist. Ephesians 4.11. Anybody want to quote me Ephesians 4.11? 11. No, you're all shy, aren't you? For, and, uh, I'll read you it. I'll read you it. It's, it's partly up there, but I'll read you it. Well, I would if I could find it. See, this is what happens when you don't mark things in advance. Ephesians 4.11. He gave, this is Christ, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Some isn't all, is it? And some as pastors and teachers, for the, what for? For the equipping of saints, for the works of ministry, to the building up the body of Christ, etc., etc. Now, here's what I want you to see. Paul affirms that gift in writing that. An evangelist is a gift. Paul is affirming the person who is the evangelist, not telling us we should all have gifts of evangelism. 
Paul says the gift, when we're talking about evangelism, the gift is the person. And that person is the gift to the church. And in that sense, we should all look to that person to inspire us, to encourage us, to build us up, and to, um, to see, you know, they, they take responsibility for stirring the church up to share its faith with others. And we have evangelists who are gifts to this church. We have Connie, who's an incredible evangelist. She can, she can do stuff that I have, I'd like, it would just like make me all tingly and weak at the knees. We have other evangelists, people who, 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 who have this gift, but maybe aren't quite as prominent as Connie is. I believe, for instance, Joyce is an evangelist. Joyce can easily lead people to Christ in a way that I cannot. There are gifts of evangelism or evangelists in this church, but the gift is the person. And that means God created them and, de de you know, or recreated them when they were born again to have something that they have to bring for everybody else. And we can't all be that person. And nor should we try. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with Paul saying, but hang on guys, that doesn't let you off the hook. Because we need a second component as to how we're going to change the world. We need a second uh, army of ordinary people who are going and bringing about the rule and reign of Christ in their everyday lives. And he, he affirms that. And what he says is believers, that's you, unless you're the evangelist, believers should be evangelistic in their outlook and their actions. So he doesn't let us off the hook. It just changes the role. And the, the really good thing to crack is how do the two interrelate? This is kind of, I don't know if any of you have thought this through before or heard people say anything like this before, but it really struck me uh, really hard as to why, when I was at university, I could, um, you know, I led loads of people to Christ in my school years and at university. You know, I, I led two people to Christ in the queue to go in for one of my finals exams. Because I, I just was able, what I'd, well, what happened was they go like, are you not bothered? Are you not bothered about this? You know, like, why aren't you worried? Because they were like, oh, how, how are you coping? I was, just sat, I was just sat there like this, you see. Doing me, I've got to look cool in a queue thing. And, um, and I said, well, why should I bother? Well, your whole future depends on it. And I said, no, it doesn't. My future depends on God. Now, I've worked hard. I've studied hard. And therefore, I'm going in there and I'm confident that I'll remember everything that I've tried to learn. And what's more, I've asked God for wisdom to show me how to approach the question. So I'm going to be okay when I go in there. That's why I'm like this. And I ended up leading two people to Christ before they went into the finals exam because I thought, I want some of that. I want some of that. Now, how can you go there to maybe having like 20 years where you never led anybody to Christ? And it was because it got this that I am not an evangelist. But I can lead people to Christ and I can talk to people about Christ and I can show them Christ. And 
And it's kind of that confusion and it, it, it like um, frozen me for years because all of a sudden you're trying to force everything. Now, evangelists have a gift of being able to force things and people don't notice. I don't have that. I try it, they don't want to be my friends. Evangelists try it and they go, oh, you're wonderful. Oh, amazing. And I do the same thing and they go, ugh. Kind of like, it's just a spiritual gift. It's a, it's a way we're designed. And most of us sit in the second camp. And we need to learn that that's a good place to be. Because we're going to lead people to Christ and we're going to show people how the kingdom works wherever we go. And that's a really good thing, isn't it? So here's how it works. So Paul, where's Paul? Paul often calls himself the apostle, but he's actually, he, he thinks of himself, himself, apostle means sent one. So he's been sent, but actually what, the way Paul thinks of himself, he thinks of himself as an evangelist. You can see that right through his letters. He's the one who'll march into a town, stand in the middle of the town, and proclaim the gospel. He's the one that'll go in and debate with people and proclaim the truth of the word. And he thinks of himself like that. Now, and therefore he says, right, I've got a responsibility for the proclamation of the gospel. I'm the evangelist. Go with me to Colossians chapter 4. And this is something we looked at in the last series right at the end. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Here we go. So this is Paul writing to the church in Colossae. Remember, this is a church he's never been to. He didn't plant it. It was planted by Epaphras. He was trained by Paul. Paul never, never went there. He didn't know any of these people. And he's answering some questions and giving them some advice. This is what he says. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's good, isn't it? Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I don't know if you've noticed that. Right there, what are you supposed to do in prayer? As an ordinary person, what do you do in prayer? You keep yourself alert in it. What are you keeping yourself alert for? That doesn't mean don't go to sleep. What are you keeping yourself alert for in prayer? For God's voice. It's a two-way conversation. It's a relationship. So we, we keep ourselves alert in prayer for what God is sharing to us, what he's showing us, giving us his wisdom, giving his, his thoughts, and that's what every ordinary believer can do. Say, I can do this. Look at the person next to you. Stare them in the eyes and say, you can do this. Everybody can do this because Jesus says, my sheep can hear my voice. So everybody can do this. You might not be familiar with doing this, and that's something we can help with, but everybody can do it. So here we go. Praying at the same time for who? For us. Who's us? Paul and his mates. They were wandering around the world. Well, they're actually in prison at this time, but generally wandering around the world. What are they doing? Sharing the gospel. So you pray for us that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we can speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned. And then he says, in order that I make it clear in the, in the way I ought to speak. And then he says what? As for you, conduct yourselves. So pray for me for open doors 
And it's really clear as I preach the gospel and it's really clear which doors I should take. That's what you pray for me. Now, you guys, everybody in Colossae, this is what I want you to do. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Are you seeing it? There's the evangelist and there's the ordinary believers. And Paul is saying the way we work is this. Evangelist, we ask for... So in supporting the evangelists within our midst, the evangelists in our church, we, we pray and we ask God to open up the opportunities, show them doors, make straight paths for them, clear the way, and we support them with resources and effort and uh, guitars and whatever else we need to support them with, and we support them because they can do something we can't. They can talk to people without offending that, the, the number we manage to offend when we try it. This have got that. Now, that's, that's our role as a church, but the evangelist's role is to what? Proclaim the gospel. I've, I've seen Connie go for it. She knows how to proclaim the gospel with beads or without beads in a way that I can't do because I get stuck, like trying to remember what the colours of the beads are. And because it needs you to do it all the time. It's a vocation. It's, it's something that's burst in your heart. And here's, here's what evangelistic believers do. Who's an evangelistic believer? That the, everybody, apart from Connie and a couple of others, should have their hands up. Okay? Because we're not the evangelists. But evangelistic believers, what do we do? We don't sit with our feet up. That's not what he's asking us to do. What he's saying is, what do you do? You pay for the evangelist ministry. You support the evangelist's work. You're wise in the way you conduct yourself towards others. There's a, a social interaction aspect of what we do. And the way we conduct ourselves towards other people, and it requires wisdom. Where's the wisdom come? By being alert in prayer where God trains our hearts and trains our actions by being alert in prayer. What else? Look for opportunities for what? To answer questions and to speak. Here's, this, this should set all of us free because no, God isn't requiring us all to be evangelists. He's requiring us to be effective believers. Evangelists proclaim. Believers share. There's a big difference between the two. Proclamation is, is like in your face, out there, forcing into opportunities, making ground, you know, clearing paths, all the rest of it. Sharing is in the context of social activity, one-to-one -one or one-to-a-few, in our lives all the time. We don't get out of it, we share. And we share with wisdom. You see, our effectiveness in evangelism is burst in the quality of our prayer life in hearing God. 
And I'll come on to that you know, later on in this series. But anyway, so let's keep going. So how do we share with wisdom? But Peter, who's got the same evangelism method, same method of changing the world, he's got something else to say on it as well. So go with me to 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Put Christ first. This has to be number one in our lives. Always been ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account, a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you. So there's a defense aspect, there's a giving account of why you are the way you are. With gentleness and reverence. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those which revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, you're going to get criticism. There's going to be people looking for opportunities to try and um, demerit what you're saying or uh, cast doubt on what you're saying. So we walk in good conscience, looking after ourselves, walking right, and always ready have a defense when people attack us and to share the hope that's within us. That's what we do. So what, Paul, what Peter's saying is this. How does it work? How do you share? Well, you share by living a life that is a questionable life. You, we have, are supposed to live questionable lives. That doesn't mean dodgy lives. I mean lives that, ask, that cause people to ask questions. We're supposed to live in a way that people can see that we're different, that, that, we, that we have different priorities, that we have different goals, that we see what is going on in our country differently to the way they do. That, that we, we have a perspective, we have a confidence that they don't have. We have a hope that they don't have. We have a joy in troubles that they don't have. We're supposed to live a life that raises questions. Not just in here, out there. Not just in the eight hours a week or less that we spend in church activities, but the 110 hours a week we spend living. And, and we're supposed to live these questionable lives. And those are lives that evoke questions, and that gives us an opportunity to share, and that's how we surprise the world. Because the world isn't supposed to understand us, and therefore it's supposed to ask questions about us. That's really different, because what we're doing here is we're listening to the Holy Spirit in our conversations to say, how do you want me to respond to what is going on here? How, how do you, what, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to uh, input? You know, I was uh, in a, a coffee shop over in Bedford a few months ago, and there was, I was waiting for somebody because I'd, I'd arrived early. And I sat there with, with my Americano and my laptop out in front of me. And I heard this conversation, and, and basically there was three young, I guess, early 20s uh, people, and they were having a coffee, and they were all sharing 
about how bad their lives have and how awful it was. And one of them turned around and said, well, I don't know how anybody can believe in God because somebody told me I should believe in God. But I don't know how anybody can because just all these awful things have happened to me. And they, they, they then gave a list and all the awful things that happened. And I have to admit, I was listening to the conversation. And, and I'm going like, okay, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And, and so I said, excuse me, I'm really sorry, but I couldn't help but hear your conversation. And I'm really sorry you've had to go through all those things. That sounds awful. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know what that must have felt like for you. I don't know what that must have been like for you. But I just wanted to say that you're not without hope. Life doesn't have to go on that way. And I've always found, for me personally, when I put my trust in God, that he's always come through. Not immediately, but he's always come through. And, and I just wanted to share that experience with you because I believe there is some hope for you. I believe there is something that, that will allow you to experience that life. And we, we had a conversation. But that's what the Holy Spirit gave me to say in that instance. Same scenario, don't do that. Don't do what I did there. Do this. If you hear a conversation like that or any people, you ask the Holy Spirit what yeah. you've got to say to those people because that was for them people. And so often we read things in books and we try and do it. It doesn't work for us. Why? Because they're different people. We don't know what's in their heart. You cannot possibly do this Christian walk without the Holy Spirit. And so we want to know how to respond to the person in front of us. That's why we're so ineffective. We, we read all these books and we spend our entire life wandering around Cambridge looking for somebody with a green jacket and a limp. Because, because we know what to say to somebody with a green jacket and a limp. Now, I'm not mean to run it down, but that's the extreme we can get to. Because what we're supposed to be doing is alert to the Holy Spirit. Alert to what he's saying to us. Asking him what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to say. So our job's to proclaim the word. Now, what he's saying is that this the most powerful, effective method of the kingdom multiplying in the world is this. It takes place in the context of ordinary life. This is a biggie. If we are going to see this land change, things need to start happening in the context of our ordinary lives, not our church lives. Listen to, and don't get offended by this. Okay, just, just steal your heart and say, I'm not going to get offended by this. But churchianity is not Christianity. And I know that can like, it's like shooting yourself in the foot as a pastor of a church, isn't it? Churchianity is not Christianity. The body gathered corporate has a massive important function to do. But we are not reflective of how we should be in the world. We can't take this into the world. I can take me into the world. And let's be honest. People have Netflix, Amazon Prime, Sky, internet, all sorts of things 
they ain't coming when we ask them. We are not the entertainment centre that we were in the 1800s and early 1900s where people would come to listen to the preacher and get saved. The world has changed. Billy Graham comes in the 1950s to Haringey and close hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people get saved. Billy Graham comes again in 1984, much less impact. Has Billy Graham changed? No, society's changed. They, they, they aren't coming to us anymore. And the more money we spend and the more effort we put on to try and get something they'll come to, the less we take, take reliance on the Holy Spirit and we listen to him a lot less. And the impact's supposed to be in the ordinary life, not the corporate life. Because the corporate life changes us the, and we take that changed person into the ordinary life. Are you with me? Yeah. Right, okay, here we go. Where am I going now? Okay. So, what's the result of this? Well, remember that I said right at the beginning, uh, we need to change some things. We need to acquire some new ways of looking at it. What we actually need is a detox. We need a detox of churchianity. Yeah? We need to get churchianity out of us. We, and for those who have, have spent the last 10 years freezing every time there was an opportunity to share, you need some antifreeze. That's all you need. You just need some antifreeze. You need a bit of detox. And I, and I don't mean that you're going to like crush some kale up and some orange juice and drink it. That's not that sort of detox. This is a, a mind-thinking detox. Because that's what the, the, the disciples needed, the 12 of them, or however many there was at the start, 120 in the upper room. That They needed a detox of the way they thought. Because they thought this is the way church has always been done for the last four or five hundred years and they need to start thinking actually now I'm the church now I'm the church and I've got legs I'm not a building I've got legs and I don't I don't have to train for 20 years of my life like the the the, the rabbis and all that to make a difference I've got legs and I've got the Holy Spirit and I makes a difference and so they needed a detox and we need one now if you imagine it there's 120 of them and they've got a world that they're facing and that world does not like them even the people next door don't like them because they're not Jews anymore well they are Jews but they're Christian Jews they're Messianic Jews now and and suddenly they're different and suddenly they're not connecting in the way they were with the stuff that they used to connect with. And they, they've got a different life and a different way of seeing things. And if you go beyond that, they're under the most brutal rule that the world has ever seen, Roman rule. The most brutal rule. And, and they've got all this lined up against them. And yet they change the world. And I know we go, well, you know, it's amazing. And they did all these things in the early church that we don't do now and you know they, they had all things in common and community you know here's the first thing that, and this is really controversial so brace yourself get holding your seat arms the first thing that the disciples did after peter had done his preach and all that sort of stuff the first thing they do is they disobey jesus don't know if you've ever seen this why why did they disobey jesus because they stay in jerusalem for years Jesus told them to go. What did they do? They stayed. 
They birthed the early church in disobedience to what Jesus told them to do. And it was only when persecution came that they actually scattered. And, and, and the Holy Spirit was able to spread the gospel across the earth instead of making it a localized thing where they were asking people to come to Jerusalem and get saved. Well, they were running out of people. But they still weren't going. And they were getting all tied up in church governance matters and all that sort of stuff. All the sort of stuff we get tied up in. And here's the thing. Despite all that, when they went, they changed the world. And this is how they did it. They did it by a mixture of evangelists proclaiming and defending the gospel and ordinary believers infiltrating every part of society with the Holy Spirit. And how did they do that? The early church did certain things that we can all do. Say, I can do it. They invited people for meals. Oh, they talked to people in, when they were shopping. They shared social activity. They made friends. They helped their neighbours do things. They walked around and were nice to people. And they looked after widows and orphans and cared for people. Just like we can do. And out of that came the biggest shock that society had seen. You see, when ordinary believers act in that way, when we do the things we talk about in here, out there, and we're kind, and we love our enemies, there's one for you, we forgive others, we care for the poor, we share our lives, we give sacrificially, it transforms the world around us. And in the course of 300 years, it rocked the world. And you're going, well, I think you're just simplifying it, Mark. You know, what about all, that, all these other things and this and that, and they were special people and all that sort of stuff. Don't rely on me. Don't actually even rely on the Bible says. I've got, a, um, it's on my, I've got it on my phone, so I've got to read you it. But here's, here's something that the Emperor, Emperor Julian wrote about the threat to the Roman Empire. He wrote this in sort of about 350 AD. The threat to the Roman Empire because... These people are denying the existence of our gods. And I believe, this is what Julian says, I believe their religion is a sickness that needs to be dealt with. This is the, the boss of the Roman Empire. Here's what he wrote. So this is his own writings about what he saw as a sickness and this terrible threat to the Roman Empire. We must pay special attention. I'll just say something right up front. He calls Christians atheists. You need to understand that because he, he refers to us as atheists because they weren't worshipping the pagan gods. So they're atheists. They, they, they don't believe in the pagan gods. Have you thought of yourself as an atheist before? Anyway, the, Julian thought we were. We must pay special attention to this point and by this means we must effect a cure. But when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. 
And they've gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for that. But just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them, and, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them into slavery, by the same method, I think these Galileans also begin with their so-called love feasts or hospitality or service to others and care for others. For they have so many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names. And the result that they have led very many into atheism, i.e. Christianity. Isn't that extraordinary that it was the ordinary lives of ordinary believers that were turning the Roman Empire into chaos? So Julian, he, he, was, he was a bright guy, and he thought, well, what do I do about it? How are we going to stop this? And as you know, they've already tried, like, burning people and throwing them to lions and all that. So he came up with a new plan. So Julian's plan was this. He'd do what they were doing, only better. He'd look at what the Christians were doing and we'd do it better in the world. So this was his plan. Why do we not observe that it's their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and, their, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase this religion? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues for it's disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but they're supporting our poor as well. So his plan was, we'd better start supporting the poor because the Christians are doing it. And it's ordinary lives that change the world. And there's none more ordinary than me. Of any, you know, I, I don't want to call you ordinary, so I, I call myself me ordinary. But we're ordinary people. I'm not, you know, I'm not born, I wasn't born with a silver spoon or held high position or anything like that. We're ordinary people. And here's the thing. The message that God loved them and was interested in them personally was absurd to the way the people saw them. Because they were used to pagan gods who didn't care about anybody on a personal level. We have the same sort of issues. We have states that don't care about the people. We have politicians who scrabble for political power. We, we have all sorts of things where people are convinced, actually, there is nobody there. There's nobody there for me. And this is life-changing because these guys, they welcomed anybody, regardless of socioeconomic status. Um, noblemen embraced slaves. Slaves embraced noblemen. Uh, they raised women up. They allowed women to learn. They emancipated women. They invited them into the meetings, whereas other religions wouldn't have them in the meetings. They set women free to a large extent at that time. And they shared their lives with others. Here's something I learned on this, this cultural symposium, which I already knew, but it, it came out again and again. We have two big problems in society these days. We have two epidemics that are sweeping across the UK and across Western society. Two sicknesses. Massive epidemic proportions. You haven't seen it on the news because it's hidden. These two epidemics are called depression and loneliness. And it's a product of the pressures and our lifestyles. The way the world has organized itself in rebellion to God. And it's everywhere 
and comes at all of us. Did you know that London, well, I, I know some of you do because I've said it before, but London has the official title of the loneliness capital of the world. Because for all its wealth and all its go-getting, people have no friends. You've got to understand, Facebook aren't friends. They're not friends. Um, they can unlike you as quick as they like you. How do we live lives that surprise in the 21st century? Because that's, that's the question, isn't it? And, and I'm going to talk about some things, habits we can build in over the next few weeks. But here's a, here's a basic principle. When people expect you to do something, it has very little impact. You know, if, if I get halfway through a sentence and in a poem, you'd, you'd probably be able to tell me the rest of the sentence because I'm trying to make it rhyme. It doesn't, have much, it doesn't have a lot of input. When we see people give huge amounts of money away because they're billion, billion, billionaires, we go, it doesn't surprise us anymore. Because we've got used to it. You know, it doesn't surprise us anymore that, that women are regarded in equal. Might surprise us in church, which is wrong, but it doesn't out in the world. And so, here's the thing. We need to live lives that surprise. How do you do that? I have no idea. For you. I have for me. Because I have a God of surprises, and he's very creative and very clever. And he can deal with things that I can't deal with. You know, uh, again, in the summer, I was in, this, in a coffee shop. There are lots of things happen in coffee shops, by the way. You should try it. You should try not just ordering a latte, but actually looking around you and smiling at people and talking to people. And if they don't arrest you, you can have a chat with them. But, you know, this, I was in there and I was in this queue and there was this lady in the queue in front of me. And she, she, she was an old lady, elderly lady from, from India, from Goa. And she couldn't speak English and she was trying to communicate with them what she wanted. And... They, they weren't, these, these two young guys behind there weren't, just weren't taking her seriously. They just weren't. Almost making fun of her. And, and she ended up, she want, I couldn't work out what she wanted either because she couldn't speak English. But she ended up with, with a teapot, a glass jar, and a peppermint tea bag. And, and she's going, and she burst into tears. And I'm going like, oh my goodness, God, what, what do you do here? How... How do I help that person? What, 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 God, we, you know, God, you have a problem. You've got a problem here. And then this lady next to me, behind me in the queue, she said, oh, it's just so sad, isn't it? You know, I, I, I have trouble that people don't understand me because I'm from Afghanistan. And, and when I talk, they can't, they, when I first came here, they couldn't understand me. And I'm going, oh, God, what are we going to do? Oh, it's so sad what's happening to this lady. And this lady from Afghanistan suddenly came past me, walks up to the counter, talks to the lady in her language, and then orders what the lady wants. And, and then helps her carry it to a seat. I'm going like, how does a woman from Afghanistan in a queue in a coffee shop manage to be there and still speak a language from, from, from India? But that's what God has set up. Because he knows that there's a solution there whatever 
And he prepared it. So I said, okay, God, that's a real instructive lesson for me. What do you, is, there any, is there anything you want me to do? Is there, what, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to watch what this lady's going to do now. So the lady from Afghanistan came back up to me because I'd got my, my coffee. And I'm stood there watching. People think you're weird sometimes, don't you? I'm stood there watching, and the lady came up, came up and she said, um, I want, I'd, I'd like a latte, please, and I'd like one of those uh, flapjack things, and uh, I'd also like one of these cakes. And so she got these, all these stuff, and then I heard God say, now this is what you do, you go and pay for it. So I went and paid for it. This lady didn't want me to pay for it, but I did, and I paid for it. Walked off, sat down with my friend, chatting away. About 20 minutes later, the lady from Afghanistan comes across to me and she says, why did you do that? Why did you pay for my, my, my thing? And I said, well, you were really helpful to that lady in that way, weren't you? And that was a really good thing to do. And I just wanted you to know that you hadn't gone without notice in the kingdom of heaven. And I just wanted you to show some of the goodness of God back to you through what you do. And, and she was just like, oh, my goodness. And then we talked for about 20 minutes all about the goodness of God. Next time you're in a queue, what do you do? You don't do that. You ask God what he wants you to do. This is how this works. We, we need to plug into God a lot more than we do ourselves. Okay, let's stand. You see, whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through in this nation and at the big level, and whatever the problems churches have, denominations have, the body of Christ have, people falling out with people, all the rest of it, whatever is going on does not make any difference to you whatsoever when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody tomorrow. They don't care about all of that. They care about what's happening to them right there, right then. They care about all that inner stuff. And you don't know what it is. Only the Holy Spirit knows what it is. So, whilst the evangelists are proclaiming and we're supporting them and we, 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 we're making opportunities for them and we're... Uh, praying for God to open opportunities to them and encourage them in building them up. And whilst they're stirring us up, they proclaim we share. What do we share? We share what the Holy Spirit gives us. So, Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you are such an awesome God. You, didn't just like, you don't just like sit on your cloud right up there, silence, and throw occasional lightning bolts down. You're not that sort of God. I thank you that you're a God that whispers into our still small place that you're a God that is intimately interested in our life, in our ways, in our being. You're interested in what is going on uh, as we sit next to somebody, as we talk to somebody, as we share with somebody. You're right now working in us, Lord, to stir us up, to invite people, to talk to people, to share meals with people, to just open our lives. And Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are such a generous, open, loving God. So, Father, whilst we might not be able to think of how all this stuff in our world sorts itself out, I know you have a plan and that ordinary people can make a difference. Ordinary people, just like me, just like you. And I thank you, Lord.
Amen.